good news is that's exactly what we offer. That's the business that we're in is bringing the hope of Jesus Christ to men, women, boys, and girls who need him. This last year across our district family, average worship attendance increased by 23%. That's the highest single increase in attendance in our history. And you say, well, Mark, that's just people coming back to church after COVID. And I said, yes. Thank you very much. I thought that was a good thing. I'm like, praise the Lord. They're coming back. Praise God. But you know, it wasn't just people showing back up. There were 23% more baptisms last year. People who had taken that next step on discipleship. In fact, last year we saw a 47% increase in people professing faith in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Is amen here today, Pastor? They say amen. Okay, all right. I, do you have to encourage them, or do they just, just okay? All right. Well, you, you're welcome. You will not scare me. I've already had one heart attack, and it wasn't from anybody saying amen. So just come on. It's okay. You know, we live in a mission field. We really, really do. And it can be. It can lull us into a sense of complacency. You think about the churches. It seems like on every corner. You think about institutions, the many Christian colleges like Indiana Wesley. You think we've even got the Gaithers. I mean, come on. How could anybody in Indiana not know Jesus by now, right? How is that even possible? But the truth is, surveys repeat over and over again, find this fact that about 3 million people in the state of Indiana have no religious affiliation. They're not Hindus. They're not Buddhists. They're not Muslims. And they are not Christ followers. Three million people. There are countries that have a vote in the United Nations that don't have three million people. And if we heard about one of those countries that didn't have Jesus, that needed the gospel, wouldn't we be mobilized to say, we're going to do something about that. We're going to accept that challenge. Well, this, I'm glad to tell you, is our mission field. It's the place that God has called us. So this year at conference, we had a, a simple challenge. It was a simple challenge because I'm a simple guy. And I, I, I need basic things to kind of keep me focused. I can get easily distracted. Shiny object. Squirrel. I mean, it's very easy for me to do that. So I, I've got to stay focused. And the challenge this year was a one, two, three challenge. Number one, for every church, for every person to say, God, where's one more place I could go? Where's one more circle of influence I could reach? For churches, what's the nearby community or the neighborhood that we could move into where we could have an influence for the kingdom where we're not currently serving? Put simply, the vision was for pastors to come back and with their congregation say, one, where's one more place that we could go? Where could God send us? And maybe that is partnering with another church to plant a new church. Maybe it's establishing a new ministry in a neighborhood or a community or even an apartment building or new school. And then we challenge not only to go but to grow, to develop the next generation of leaders. Oh, I was so pleased to see. Where would that young man go who read scripture and did such a great job? There he is right back there. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And thank you for thinking about your next generation. You know, churches that focus on the next generation are churches that grow. And churches that focus on just what makes me comfortable in my state of uh, maturity, I'll call it, in my state of maturity, we're in desperate trouble, right? It's not about us. It's always about the next generation. Who's God raising up? And who can, how can we be investing in their lives? So we're going to talk about both of those things briefly. You always wonder when a pastor says briefly. I really do mean briefly. So hang in here. I would definitely be done. I'll turn it back over to Rhonda here by 1130 at the latest. <laughs> we serve a God who's always been calling his people to go. 
So go and to grow. To go. He's always been calling them to go. Think about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. He heard the call of God to go, and he left. He stepped out in faith to find his new promised land without a map, without his GPS. Away he went just saying, God, guide me, direct me, follow me. I'll follow you step by step till we get there. Go. Moses heard the call to go. It was to go back. It was to go back someplace he'd left to get away from. I mean, he was facing murder charges back in Egypt. And God said, I want you to go back to that place. And I want you there to lead my people out of captivity. And Jesus' parting words that we know so well in Matthew chapter 28 was, Go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them. Baptize them. Make a difference literally around the globe. Jesus has to remind them of that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I thought it was interesting. In Matthew 28, it said that it says it again here in, in Acts 1.8. It's this idea, it's so easy for us to forget to go. There's a, a, I think there's a, a built-in kind of draw to stay, to kind of settle, to kind of be in a comfort zone. I, I like that. I've got my favorite spot in our living room, like where if we come in, 80% chance you'll find me seated in the same place. Some of you are that way in church. Let's just get a witness, right? So you're, you know where you want to be. There's something about our human nature that kind of likes to stay, and yet we have a God who calls us to move out, to move beyond our comfort, to realize there's always somebody who has not yet heard the gospel. Jesus reminded the disciples, don't stay in Jerusalem, but go to Judea, Samaria, and even to the out the outermost parts of the earth. And I'm convinced that God is still calling us today. Sometimes that begins with just a clearer understanding, both of where we are and where he may be calling us. Sometimes we even lose sight of where we are. Where we are can change when we're not paying attention. I found this true of a church I worked with in Holland, Michigan, Central Wesleyan Church, thriving, wonderful church. God was blessing them. They were running, at that time, probably 2,500 people in average worship attendance. And they were thanking the Lord, and they were sending people around the world in missions and doing some wonderful things. But they had missed the fact that their own community was changing. We sat down in a strategy session with them one day and said, well, what's new today? And they began to talk about some trends and statistics and demographics. And they realized that their community, this wonderful Dutch community, they told me when I came there, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. I mean, they were pretty serious about it, okay? If you're not Dutch, you're not much. So that was Holland, Michigan, Tulip Town, right? But they looked around and discovered that 20% of their population was Hispanic. 20% of their population was Hispanic, and they as a church had no intentional ministry to people who spoke Spanish. And God began to stir their heart and open some doors. And before you knew it, within the next year or so, they planted a new church called La Roca. I love to say that. La Roca. Uh, that's about the extent of my Spanish vocabulary. I can say tacos and uh, fajita. That's, that's uh, very limited, very limited. But we reached out to a pastor named Ronaldo Morales. And Ronaldo just had this amazing heart for lost people and helped us launch that church. And from there, we launched other Hispanic churches in our district. But it started with just looking around. You know, Jesus said, lift up your eyes. And see the harvest field. It's already white. There's things happening. It's ripening around us even as we speak. There are people, groups, generations, neighborhoods. There are demographics in our community that desperately need the hope of Jesus. It starts with knowing our community. Where are we today? We had that experience. Sherry and I moved to Williston, North Dakota. And now there's an advantage to being new in town. Because when you go to a place and you're new, you kind of see it with fresh eyes and you look around. I remember having this conversation with our board. I said, well, tell me about your town. Like, how many people don't go to church? Oh, they looked at me with a straight face and they said, Mark, everybody in Williston goes to church. 
thought, well, this is almost like Disneyland, the most wonderful place in the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> what in the world? Is that even possible? I, they really were sincere. Now, what I discovered was everybody they talked to, everybody they knew attended church. But I, I said, these people are going to need facts because I'm not going to be able to convince them, right? So let's do some research. And my secretary, Barb Rosendahl, and I, we started making phone calls. We called every church in the phone book. We asked them, how many seats do you have in your auditorium? And they told us. It turns out there were only about 6,000 seats in a town of 13,000 people. So that was my first clue. Not everybody's going, right? <laughs> and the second clue was this. On a given Sunday, we asked them, what's your average attendance? On a given Sunday, about 3,900 people out of 13,000 were in church. And we sat down as a board and looked at those numbers and realized over half the people in this town couldn't sit in a church seat if they decided to go on Sunday. There were only 6,000 seats for 12,000 people. And then about two-thirds of those seats were filled. We began to say, God, who are the people we're missing? Who are we overlooking? Who's right around us that we somehow have failed to see with your kingdom eyes? One of the groups that we discovered in our community were single mothers. Uh, through a number of kind of un unfortunate demographic issues there. There were divorcees and there were mom young moms who had babies and, and no husbands. And we saw this need. God began to bring it to our attention. And so we had a lady in our church who had been a single mom that was now married. Her husband was a counselor, Christian counselor, wonderful family, but she never lost their heart for her own experience and what it was like for people who were in that situation. And she helped our church begin to develop outreach. They started a single mom support group. The guys in the church said, how can we help? Well, Dan had a shop with a pit in it. And so we began once a month to offer free oil change for single moms. Because some single moms are great with oil changes, okay? I don't want to just kind of put people in blanket slots because I can't change my own oil. So I'll just go there, right? But most of these single moms were very appreciative of having some guys who on a Saturday morning would turn those wrenches. And guys who would never sing in the choir, they'd never teach a Bible study, they could change oil. And they did it really, really well. And as they did that, they noticed the tires are a little low, or maybe they're bald and they need replaced, or they saw something else that we could help. And we began to minister to these single moms, and they found a place of hope and encouragement as Val ministered to their hearts, and we ministered to these physical, tangible needs. The church began to grow. They'd bring their kids. Well, then we had to expand the nursery. And then next, guess what happened next? I had to start doing pre-marriage counseling. Because <laughs> these moms who were, who were feeling supported and encouraged and empowered, guys were coming around and saying, hey, baby. And next thing you know, the church is growing and, and we're having weddings. And, and it started, though. It started by just saying, God, help us to see who is it around us that we're not reaching, who, that we're not seeing. Like, God, where are you asking us to go? What's that next group or the next neighborhood? And I tell you, God wants to do that for you, Harvest Church. He wants, Harvest Church, where in the world am I? <laughs> Brown's Chapel. He wants you to see the harvest and be a harvesting church. Let's go with that. He wants to see, he, he, he has an opportunity for all of us. There are people around us. And sometimes we just kind of live in our space and we forget the need. We forget what it was like to be lost. May God give us fresh eyes to go to see who's around us, who needs Jesus. You know, one of the unique things that happens, we've, we have a church in our district that has been very intentional about asking their people, where do you work? Where do you serve? And how, what would it look like if you thought about your workplace as your mission field? Like, you don't have to go to Albania or Croatia. You could say, God, you are sending me to that hospital, to that classroom, to that office space, and I'm being paid by somebody to be there, and there's no rule that says I can't be filled with hope and love and joy. And when people ask me why I have hope, I can tell them. 
Or I can say, hey, can't talk about it at work, but if you want to have coffee sometime, I would love just to share with you the difference that Jesus has made in our life. What if every single one of us owned that, that we get to go tomorrow as everyday missionaries into our workplace and to see the doors that God has opened? Where, where has God already strategically placed your church where you can be salt and light? So where might God be leading your church to go? And let me say, this is less about just kind of deciding. It's not about strategic planning so much as it is about discerning, saying, Holy Spirit, help us to see. Open our eyes. Make us responsive to your calling, to your leading force. Now, to, to get a sense of this, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Some of you are way ahead of me. You already had it there. You're like, would he please get to the Bible? I'm like, let's do it. All right. Actually, I, I, I need to begin in verse 24 of 12, and then we'll jump into 13. But here's uh, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Man, you don't have to defend the word or protect the word. You just have to let the word loose. The word of God will do just fine on its own. Just get it out there. Just spread it. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. So when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they'd gone down to Jerusalem bringing a, ben uh, a gift of, of benevolence to the people in need there. They came back to Jerusalem bringing with them John, also called Mark. Now here we begin in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyprene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Can I just confess, a lot of times in the Bible when I see lists of names, I just got to skip right through it. Guilty as charged. Like I do the daily Bible reading. Some of you do that same. If you don't, I encourage it. You version, a free app on your phone, and you can pick, pick out the one-year Bible, and I just love to go through that every year. About 12 to 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in a year, and it just gives it to you right there. But I will be, uh, when I get to some of those begats, the begat, the begat, the begat. That, that's how I just got, oh, please. But you know, there's, there's nuggets in there. And I read these names. I said, whoa, slow down, Mark. Take a look at who these people are. The first name we're pretty familiar with is a guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas. Where do you know that name? Well, back in Acts chapter 4, when you look at the early church in Jerusalem, you'll discover that Barnabas was a man who's there. He's part of the church. It doesn't appear that he's a native of Jerusalem. He's come down from Cyprus. So he probably has land. He's a landowner of some kind. We know that because later in that same chapter, he will sell some of his land. Maybe he's a developer or a farmer. He had, he had investment property, though, and he's not personally there managing it. He's in Jerusalem at that point. When the gospel breaks out in Antioch and they need someone to go and check it out, guess who they send? Barnabas. That tells me he's a man who's trusted. He's a man who's able to discern and see what's going on and get a good handle on the situation. So this guy, Barnabas, is a man who's also known as the son of encouragement. In other words, that was his nickname. They said, here he comes. Man, his daddy must be encouragement. This guy, he's just everywhere he goes. It's just in his DNA. He is an encourager. So he's experienced and he's trusted. And in Antioch, he's basically the senior pastor. Or the, or the leader of the team there. He's, he's the number one. You get it. You see it. But then Simeon. Simeon, it says, of Niger. Now, this is not from Nigeria. That was my first thought. Like, oh, from Nigeria. No. He's from Niger. It spoke to him of his color of his skin. He was a North African, very likely dark skin. He's likely from Cyrene, the same place as Lucius is from. But Lucius is not, not described that way. So it's li likely that uh, Lucius is more of Arabic in descent. So he's a little lighter skin, and you see Simeon's darker skin. He's probably a trading merchant or perhaps a very skilled craftsman. We know this Simeon, Bible scholars tell us, is the same Simeon who's asked to carry the cross of Jesus 
on the way to Golgotha. Do you remember a man named Simeon was, was asked? It's this Simeon. Most Bible scholars agree. And here he is. He finds himself now in Antioch. He's part of this team. And Lucius from Cyrene, another immigrant. Cyrene is basically approximately where we'd think of Libya. So if you look on the map in North Africa around the Mediterranean, you see that that's where Lucius is from. And again, probably a merchant, a trader, or a skilled craftsman to have been traveling like this, to perhaps have been first in Jerusalem and now has made his way to Antioch. And then there's an interesting name just kind of thrown in there, Menean. It says he had grown up in King Herod's court. Now, who was King Herod? This is the Herod who lopped off the head of John the Baptist. Just to give, there were a lot of Herods. This is the Herod that lopped off the head of John the Baptist. Menean grows up in his courthouse. We don't know in his, in his uh, courtroom. Court something. In his court. I was going to say courthouse. Where do we stay? At the courtyard Marriott. See, that's what happens when you get old. You're like, the courtyard, where is it here? Uh, he grew up in the household. Oh, there's a better word. He grew up in the household of Herod. He's politically connected. We don't think he was a, an actual child of Herod. He more likely was someone who was fostered or maybe a child of one of the inner circle. But he grew up in this place of influence and power. He's politically connected. He's with the Herodians. Now, what do you know about the Herodians? They were collaborators with the Roman occupiers. So if you're a pure-blooded Jew, if you're a strict Pharisee, what do you think about collaborators with this Gentile oppressive government? Like, you do not get along with them, right? You see them almost the same as the enemy. But that's who Menean is before he comes to know Christ. And here he is now. He's one of the leaders in the church. And then finally, bringing up the bottom of the batting order is Saul. Now, we'll find Saul's name changed pretty quickly to Paul, but at this time, he's still known as Saul, and we know Saul as the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Like, he was the pure-blood zealot. He was the guy who had taken orders from the chief Pharisees and had gone out to try to wreak havoc, to, to persecute, to imprison, and in some cases, there were even people killed because of Saul's persecution of the church. In fact, they tell us that the very first martyr, Saul says, I was there giving approval. I'd signed off on it when they killed Stephen. And here he is in this list. He's the newest convert, likely. He's, he's probably the newest one who's joined the team, but he's the only one who has a theological education, which I think is kind of humorous, right? He's number five on the batting list, but he's the only one that has any degrees. So God bless him. He, he's, uh, he, he hasn't got his doctorate yet, though, Theo, so it's okay. Keep going after it. So do you notice, though, I love this. Do you notice how different these people are? I'm so thankful in the body of Christ we don't all have to be the same. God calls us to unity, oh, not uniformity. There's a difference, right? This is unity. And we see this beautiful diversity that's unified in the kingdom of God. And one of the ways we see their unity is that they are praying and fasting and worshiping together. Oh, I just want to tell you, Brown's Chapel Church, I'm so encouraged by the focus that you've put on prayer. As Pastor Theo and Randy have helped to lead that, and there were some people I think here who already had that same vision, and if you've linked hearts together, God does miraculous things when people pray. I love what our friend, uh, the missionary Hudson Taylor said, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. I probably said that too fast because I'm a Canadian and I get a little excited. So I'm going to say it one more time, slower, like my wife would say it in Mississippi. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And don't we need God to work? 
Look, the problems we have in our society are not going to be smart, saved by smarter people. We're not going to fix the problems just by having more political influence. We need the Spirit of God to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. And we're seeing God on the move. We're seeing, maybe you've experienced this here, we're seeing people walk through the doors of the church, just sometimes, even uninvited, but often they're coming, finally, and people have been working on them for years, they finally are walking through the doors. They haven't been in church in years. In some cases, they've never been in church. Heard a story just this week in one of these communities where you think everybody must know the Bible. The lady came after up after the service, talked to the pastor and said, excuse me, when you would read those words off the screen, there was somebody's name at the bottom, and then there was like numbers and dot dots. What are the numbers and the dot dots, and who are the people? <laughs> he, he thought she was joking. He thought she was pulling his leg. He's like, really? She said, no, really. Like, she didn't know that that was the name of the gospel writer, Matthew, and that those were the chapters and those were the verses. And sometimes we just assume that people know, and they don't. And it's our opportunity. It's our opportunity. Pray, oh God, please do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So we, we, we need to go. And then don't go alone. I, I want you to notice this wonderful team. They didn't go alone. They went as a team. Now, all the, they didn't all go. It's Barnabas and Saul who are called out to go. But did you notice even before they left, they take one more person with them? Who's that person? Do you notice who that person is? Do you see it there in verse 5, 4 and 5? They take along this young fellow. They take along a guy who had also identified there in chapter 12, the last verse, as John Mark. Now, what do we know about John Mark? Well, we know he's young. We know he's inexperienced. And we know he's going to mess up. And you know that's okay. That's how people learn. That's how people grow. That's how people develop when we invest in them. Uh, last, uh, last month at District Conference, we ordained 16 new people into the gospel ministry. I think that's a record for us, 16 people who prepared themselves and answered God's call. They stepped out in faith to say, here am I, Lord, send me. And uh, my calling is not just for us to go, but to go with someone, bring people along, invite people to be part of that journey. They send out uh, these two, Barnabas and Saul, experienced, trusted leaders, but they also take John Mark with them. And John Mark... Uh, some scholars, this was fascinating to me as I was doing my homework, some scholars suggest that he was the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Now what do we know about him? He loved his wealth, but he wanted to follow Jesus, but he's torn back and forth, back and forth. What do we know about him? His mother was a wealthy widow. When Peter leaves prison and needs a place of refuge, she, he goes to the home of John Mark's mother. So here's this person that God calls out, this young leader. His name John is a Semitic or Hebrew name. His name Mark is his Greco-Roman name. He's a young man who God calls, puts his hand on. Now think about this. If Barnabas had gone by himself, which he could have done, right? Uh, there is a wonderful African proverb, and I, I actually asked Africans, is this true? When I was in Zambia, they said, yes, it's an African proverb. A lot of things that people say are African proverbs apparently are not African proverbs, but... Kind of like Abraham Lincoln said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet, okay? So that's it. <laughs> In this case, it's a true proverb. You can go farther alone. You can go faster alone, but you can go farther together. And Barnabas could have gone faster alone, but he went with a team, and he brought along Paul, and he brought along John Mark. And what do we know about that? Well, John Mark ends up writing the very first gospel record of Jesus. The gospel of Mark is written by this same young man, and most scholars say the other gospel writers referred, referenced the works of Mark. 
that kind of for the very first time captured the life of Jesus? What if they'd said, he's too young, he's too inexperienced, we can't take him? And what about Paul? I mean, Paul had lots of strikes against him, but Barnabas was the one who invited him to come to Antioch, put him on the team, and now takes him on the journey. And eventually, Paul will eclipse Barnabas and will write one-third of the New Testament. You can never go wrong investing in next-generation leaders. And that's not just for the pastor. Let me just tell you, Sticky Faith did a survey, and you know about this, don't you, Ben, that kids, teenagers in the church are more likely to stay in their faith if at least two adults in the church, other than their parents, know them by name, and ask how they're doing and stay involved in their lives. So everybody in this room over 30, you can do that. You can do that. You can look around at these teenagers, tell them how glad you are they're here. Give them an invitation to serve alongside you like you're doing back there on the tech stuff. Wonderful. May that be true in every area, every ministry of our church. God wants to use us to make a difference. And I think about John Wesley who really did get this. You know, you hear the name Francis Asbury. Ever hear that name? Asbury Seminary, Asbury College. Francis Asbury, who founded and planted over 200 churches, Methodist churches. Francis Asbury again preaching at 18 years of age. And when John Wesley entrusted the mission of the Methodist movement in America to him, he was 26 years old. So I'm challenging every one of our pastors, and all of you too can join this. One more place to go. God, where are you calling me to go? And two more people to grow. Look around you. Find a couple of young people. Take them out for coffee. Invest in them. Pray for them. Bless them. Encourage them. And let's see in the next three years what God can do. Because the mission field is ready for us. They need us. And God is on the move. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for Brown's Chapel, which has such an incredible legacy of faith and has such a bright future. Lord, we're excited about what you're doing even now. We thank you for the prayer group. We thank you for the way that you're stirring people's hearts. We thank you for people who are coming to faith in Christ, people who are joining the church. We believe the greatest days of the church are yet ahead. A mighty fortress is our God. Lord, help us to march on with you. Help us to keep our faces forward, to be filled with hope and love and joy and peace and to make a difference in our world. And we'll give you all the thanks, the praise, the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.